Chapter Seventeen of A Negro Explorer at the North Pole by Matthew A. Henson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. If you will remember, the journey from Cape Sheridan to Cape Columbia was with overloaded sledges in the darkness preceding the dawn of the Arctic day, mostly over rough going and uphill, and now the tables were turned. It was broad day and downhill with lightened sledges, so that we practically coasted the last miles from the twin peaks of Columbia to the low, slanting foreshore of Sheridan and the Roosevelt. After the forty hours' rest at Cape Columbia, Commander Peary had his sledges loaded up, and with Egingois and the best of the remaining dogs he got away. I was told I could remain at the camp for another twelve hours. A large and substantial cache of supplies had been dropped at Cape Columbia by various members of the expedition, and when the commander was gone I gave the boys full permission to turn in and eat all they wanted, and I also gave the dogs all they could stuff, and it was not until all of us had gorged ourselves to repletion that I gave the order to Vamoose. We were loaded to capacity, outward and inward, and we saw a bountiful supply still lying there, but we could not pack another ounce. It was early in the morning of April 25, when Peary started for the ship. It was about four or five hours later, about noon, when I gave the word, and Utah, Siglu, Uquia, and myself left Crane City, Cape Columbia, Grantland, for the last time. We overtook the commander at Point Moss, and we travelled with him to Cape Colon, where we camped. Peary continued on to Sail Harbor, and we stayed in our comfortable camp and rested. We again caught up with the commander at Porter Bay, where we camped for a few hours. The following morning I rearranged the sledges and left two of them at Porter Bay. It was my intention to reach the ship on this evening. We made a short stop at Black Cliff Bay and had lunch, and without further interruption we travelled on, and at about 8.45 p.m. we sighted the Roosevelt. The sighting of the ship was our first view of home and far away as she was, our acutely developed senses of smell were regaled with the appetizing odour of hot coffee, and the pungent aroma of tobacco smoke, wafted to us through the clear, germ-free air. The Eskimo boys, usually excited on the slightest provocation, were surprisingly stolid, and merely remarked, Umiaksoa, the ship, in quiet voices, until I, unable to control myself, burst forth with a loud hip-hip-hurrah, and with all that was left of my energy hurried my sledge into the ship. We had been sighted almost as quickly as we had sighted the ship, and a party of the ship's crew came running out to meet us, and as we rushed on we were told about the safe arrival of Commander Peary, Bartlett, Borup, Macmillan, and Dr. Goodsell. Transported with elation and overjoyed to find myself once more safe among friends, I had rushed onward, and as I recognized the different faces of the ship's company, I did not realize that some were missing. Chief Wardwell was the first man to greet me. He photographed me as I was closing in on the ship, and with his strong right arm pulled me up over the side and hugged me to his bosom. "'Good boy, Matt,' he said. "'Too bad about Marvin.' and then I knew that all was wrong, and that it was not the time for rejoicing. I asked for Peary, and I was told that he was all right. I saw Captain Bartlett, and I knew that he was there. But where was Borup? Where were Macmillan, Marvin, and where was Dr. Goodsell? Dr. Goodsell was right by my side, holding me up, and I realized that it was of him I was demanding to know of the others. 
Reason had not left me, the bonds of sanity had not snapped, but for the time I was hysterical, and I only knew that all were well and safe, excepting Marvin, who was drowned. A big mug of coffee was given to me, I drank a spoonful, a glass of spirits was handed me, I drank it all, and I was guided to my cabin, my fur clothes were taken off, and for the first time in sixty-eight days I allowed myself to relax, and I fell into a sleep. When I awoke I had the grandest feast imaginable set before me, and after eating I had the most luxurious bath possible, and then some more to eat, and afterwards some more sleep. Then I shaved myself, combed my hair, and came out of my cabin and crossed over to the galley, and sat on a box, and watched Charlie at work. Then I thought of the dogs, and went outside and found that they had been cared for. I wondered when the commander would want to see me. All of the time the sailors and Charlie and the Eskimo folks were keeping up a running fire of conversation, and I was able to gather from what they said that my dear, good friend, Professor Marvin, was indeed lost that Peary had reached the Roosevelt about seven hours ahead of me, that Captain Bartlett was suffering with swollen legs and feet, that Macmillan and Borup, with their own and Marvin's boys, had gone to Cape Jessup, and that Puadluna and Panikpa had taken their families and returned to Eskimo land. For days after I reached the Roosevelt I did nothing but rest and eat. The strain was over, and I had all but collapsed but with constant eating and sleeping I was quickly myself again. The pains and swelling of my limbs did not come, as they had on all of the other returnings, and neither was Peary troubled. Captain Bartlett was the only one of the expedition that had been out on the sea ice who felt any after-effects. Every day, a few minutes after rising, he would notice that his ankle, knee, and hip joints were swollen, and while the pain was not excessive, he was incapacitated for more than ten days, and he spent the most of his time in his cabin. When he came out of his cabin and did talk to me, it was only to compare notes and agree that our experiences proved that there was absolutely no question about our having discovered the pole. Captain Bartlett, Dr. Goodsell, Chief Wardwell, Percy. They could talk as they would, but the one ever-present thought in my mind was of Marvin and of his death. I thought of him, and of his kindness to me, and the picture of his widowed mother, patiently waiting for the return of her son, was before me all of the time. I thought of my own mother, whom I scarcely remembered, and I sincerely wished that it had been me who had been taken. When Macmillan and Borup returned, I learned all about the sad affair, from Kudluk to and Harrigan, and I feel that had he been with civilized companions, the sad story of Marvin's death would not have to be told. On breaking camp, he had gone on, leaving the boys to load up and follow him. They were going south to the land and the ship, and there was no need for him to stay with them, and when they came up to where he had disappeared, they saw the ice newly formed about him, his head and feet beneath, and nothing showing but the fur clothing of his back and shoulders. They made no effort to rescue him, and had they succeeded in getting his body out, there is little chance that they could have kept him alive, for the temperature was far below zero, and they knew nothing about restoring life to the drowned. No blame can be laid to his childish companions. He died alone, and he passed into the great unknown alone, bravely and honorably. He is the last of earth's great martyrs. He is home. His work is done. He is where he longed to be. The sailor is home in the sea. 
it is poor satisfaction to those that he left behind that his grave is the northernmost grave on the earth but they realize that the sacrifice was not made in vain for it was due to him that those who followed were able to keep the trail and reach the land again the foolish boys in accordance with eskimo tradition had unloaded all of professor marvin's personal effects on the ice so that his spirit should not follow them and they hurried on back to land and to the ship where they told their sad story end of chapter seventeen